Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Here, if you don't have them, you can come up and get get them, but I've already made a couple of, several more uh, modifications and edits since uh, last week, and those are, the one that we're looking at tonight is on the outline, the one that has Acts and Outline on the front, and that has already been, gone through another revision that is up on the net, up on the website, so if you go to the Lesson for last week under uh, media files, then that is that should be posted there as the outline. Are we missing? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not in your, on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever." Before we get started, let's make sure we are uh, spiritually prepared to study the Word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we're thankful that we have this opportunity to study your Word and to see how in the early church the Holy Spirit worked to expand Christianity from just a small group in Jerusalem to where it was impacting the entire known world at the at that time. Father, we pray that as we continue our overview of the book of Acts, that this will help us to be able to just put all these details together and have a good understanding of the uh, structure of this book before we begin its study, that we may be able to read it with understanding and knowledge and that God the Holy Spirit can use this profitably in our spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Okay. Got that working. All right. Last time we started in Acts, and we started by just doing a little 
background information, a little geography lesson with, uh, with the maps, and we're going to do a little more with that uh, tonight because geography is important not just for understanding the, the land of Israel and the locations of uh, Judea, Samaria, and Galilee, but as we go through the book of Acts and the expansion of Christianity out from Jerusalem, we eventually go to Antioch of Syria, then to uh, Antioch in Pisidia, which is one of the territories in what is now modern Turkey, and on to uh, the, the uh, uh, province of Asia, which uh, was in the western part of Turkey. And so now we often talk of uh, that as Asia Minor, but Asia was just the westernmost province along the uh, uh, Adriatic Sea up to, uh, up to Constantinople, or at, at that time it was... Uh, um, up to Byzantium, and then uh, across to uh, Greece and understanding where Thrace, Macedonia, Achaia, those areas in Greece, and then on to Rome. So a lot of geography. So we will look at these uh, areas as we continue our study, but at least this way you'll get a little introduction to these locations. I pointed out last time that the uh, main verse in Acts for understanding the structure is in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The Lord Jesus Christ, as he is talking to the apostles and giving them final instructions before he departs at the ascension, tells them in verse 8, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and then to the uttermost part or to the end of the earth. This becomes the structure for the book as you move out from Jerusalem in the first initial chapters and then expand outward. Now, I've revised the outline. So there's a revision up there as I was going through it, reading through Acts again for the umpteenth time this last week, thinking through various uh, structural issues. I decided that this... that. Uh, I had foreshortened the second section. I had started it at 6-8 and had taken it, I think, through 9, which is the salvation of Paul. But the expansion outside of Judea and Samaria really doesn't occur until Paul begins his first missionary journey, which is in 13-1, which is, I believe, the way this chart started off. I, uh, I started it in terms of the outline. We'll go through that in a minute. But the middle section... Uh, goes from 6-8, which is the beginning of uh, uh, the emphasis on Stephen, and it is Stephen and his uh, sermon or his message there in the latter part of chapter 6 that is the, uh, that's really the, 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 ca- the, the immediate cause of the persecution that develops in Jerusalem, which pushes uh, the the early Christians out of Jerusalem. Jesus told them that they were to take the gospel to Judea and Samaria, but like most of us, they wanted to stay in their comfort zone, and they didn't really want to leave home. So then, uh, because they didn't leave home, persecution arose, forcing them to move out, forcing them to, to go into Judea and Samaria and taking the gospel. So I include that section with Stephen in the middle part because that's the that's the immediate cause of the of the uh, expansion, and then there's an emphasis in chapter 10 
Uh, Peter is taking the gospel to uh, Cornelius, who's in Caesarea, and then later we have the episode with Philip. So all of that's still taking place within Judea and Samaria, and then when chapter 13 begins uh, with Paul taking the gospel. So it just involved moving a few things around. But this is a basic structure. If you can just think in terms of these three areas, Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and then the uttermost part of the earth, you can work your way through uh, through the book of Acts. In the first part, the focus is on Jerusalem and the immediate expansion and enlargement of the church. And we see the, as I pointed out last time, there is a tremendous response uh, to the proclamation of the gospel. On the Immediately on the day of Pentecost, there were... 3,000 who responded to the gospel, uh, minimal, and there were many more. And as the church began to grow in the last uh, 10 verses or so, or 8 verses of Acts, Acts 2, there is a uh, emphasis on how the church continued to expand and continued to grow. And at the end of the, the chapter in verse 47, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Then there's another event that occurs sometime later. We're not told how... Uh, close it was in proximity, maybe a month, maybe two months later, with Peter and John going up to the temple uh, to pray, healing the uh, lame man. And then once again, uh, Peter gives another uh, message to at, at the temple, and there's another uh, large number of people saved. At that point, we're told that 4,000 men were saved. We don't know how many Others were saved along with them. So we see this, or 5,000 men were saved, and we see this expansion. So now we've got 3,000 and now 5,000 men, which could be as many as 10, 12, 15,000 people total. And and in between, large numbers had, had uh, uh, trusted in the gospel. So within the three or four months following the day of Pentecost, which would have come in probably late May of that year, uh, from that time until um, uh, through the summer, summer months, four or five months, you, you could have had as many as 20, 25,000 people within at Jerusalem come to uh, understand the, the gospel. And not all of them lived there. Many of them had come from other parts of the empire to come back to Jerusalem for those major uh, feast days that, uh, especially the day of Pentecost, was when you had Passover, Pentecost, and later the day of atonement in the fall. So as all those huge numbers came in, many of those, or a certain number of them at least, we can assume were probably uh, believers in, ter- in an Old Testament sense prior to the coming of the Messiah. And so some of them are just making a transition from being uh, saved in terms of an Old Testament sense to uh, accepting Jesus as Messiah, but there were many of them who were uh, coming to salvation in a uh, for initially for the first time. And so last time I basically covered just this first section. Now these are the three outline, three major points in the outline. I've changed the versification on the second point. So the first point, God, through the Holy Spirit, authenticates, empowers, and directs the apostles' witness in Jerusalem. That's 1, 1 through 6, 7. And 6, 1 through 7, we have the appointment of these first men who are to assist the apostles in the administration of the details of the uh, of the ministry, uh, specifically in terms of making sure sure 
that no one is being overlooked in the uh, administration of uh, food and the distribution of food and finances to help those, uh, primarily the uh, the widows uh, the, of the Hellenists. Those were those Jews who lived in the uh, diaspora who were not um, did not live uh, locally. They had come from outside of uh, Judea. That pretty much brings us up to where I was last time. Now, the second division, God expands the witness of the church into Judea and Samaria. They're not moving out. Jesus had commanded them that they were to be witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria. But up to this point, which is probably about a year uh, or two after the crucifixion. If the crucifixion's 33, this is in late 34 to early 35. Now, that, that uh, handout I gave you with the outline of Acts, and the, following that, there's also a chronology that you can uh, look at as you're reading through, looking at the book, seeing how things fit together. Uh, as I pointed out last time, that's a chronology based on the work that Dr. Honer did at Dallas Seminary. And it gets pretty detailed in some some areas, but this is a uh, uh, this is about a year to two years after the uh, resurrection. So about this would be by the time uh, of the situation with Stephen. This would be in April of 35. So this is two years after the crucifixion. They haven't moved out. So the, God is going to utilize this to bring about a persecution of the church, and as that happens, they're forced to, to spread out. Now, Stephen is accused wrongly of blasphemy. His words are distorted, and then he is taken before the Sanhedrin in order to be uh, examined and, and brought on trial. So the high priest begins to interrogate him and gives him an opportunity to defend himself, in which case he gives an extended Message. This is usually referred to as Stephen's sermon. It's an extended message where he goes back to the beginning of God's call to Abraham and he traces through the response that the Israelites have given to God's grace initiatives down through the Old Testament, pointing out uh, numerous times that they resisted whatever the Holy Spirit was doing. And they resisted God, and God brought discipline into the life of the nation. He brings this to its conclusion by verse 51 and accuses them of being stiff-necked and uncircumcised, directly addressing uh, the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Now, this, must, this took a tremendous amount of courage, and when he does that, they become so angry, verse 54 says they were cut to the heart, which is an idiom for the fact that they are coming under uh, conviction, and they respond negatively to that. Now, in Acts chapter 2, at Peter's initial sermon on the day of Pentecost, he uses the same idiom, and people were cut to the heart, but then they responded positively. So that phrase, cut to the heart, simply means that they come to a conviction of the truth, but here they reject it. And they become so angry that they violate uh, the law that's set forth in the Midra, uh, the Mishnah. They violate the the law as set forth uh, by the, by by the Jewish authorities, not Roman law, but Jewish law. And they pick up stones to stone him. 
And he says in verse 56, Look, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, and they cry out with a loud voice, stop their ears, and run at him, cast him out of the city, and stone him. So they just have an emotional reaction, violate the law, and he is the first, uh, the first martyr in the church. Then there's an interesting note in the verse 1 of chapter 8. Note, always remember these verse numbers and chapters weren't there to begin with. And we're told that now Saul was consenting to his death. And that's just an aside, just one sentence. It's like a parenthesis after this whole description of this mob action where they've stoned Stephen to death, the writer says, now Saul was standing there watching all of this and uh, consented to it. This, of course, is Saul of Tarsus, who will be, be known later as the Apostle Paul. So his, he, uh, he had two names. Saul, or Saulus, was, the, was his Hebrew name. And Paulos was his Latin name. So he became known later by his Latin name Paul rather than his Hebrew name Saul. But this is uh, Saul of Tarsus or the Apostle Paul. Now what happens then is that we're told in, in the second part of that verse, at that time a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Notice they were all scattered, so they all get sent split up, except the apostles who stay in Jerusalem, and this becomes the center of, of apostolic action and apostolic authority uh, in the early church. Now, Saul, we're told, in verse 3, becomes extremely self-righteous in his arrogance and hostility towards Christianity, and we're told in verse 3 that he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. So he takes it upon himself to destroy this new work. He sees it as a threat to Judaism, and he is a, a one-man uh, <clears throat> one head squad to go out and to arrest and charge anyone who is a Christian and many of them were, were killed and martyred as a result of what he was doing. He is extremely hostile and doing everything he can to destroy Christianity. But we're told in verse 4, Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Now I want you to notice that as you, we go through this section, uh, 6-8, let me put that section up here. As we go through this particular section, uh, down into chapter uh, chapter eight, uh, as as this develops, that this we'll constantly see this word preaching. Most of the time, now there's a couple of times when a couple of other words are used, but most of the time the word that you see preaching, especially if it says preach the gospel, is the Greek word uangelizo. That's how we usually pronounce it. Although the u, the upsilon is. Uh, historically in Greek was pronounced as a V, which is why we get uh, it pronounced as evangelizo or evangelism. That's a direct transliteration of that word. And it angelizo is the word for to make an announcement or a pronouncement. And that epsilon, upsilon at the beginning, the EU or EV as it uh, comes to be pronounced, is means something good. So it's the proclamation of good news or the preaching of good news. It's not the word uh, keruso, 
which, which is often used, uh, pr- uh, translated preaching. But here, and in most of Acts, it is the word uh, evangelizo, meaning to uh, proclaim the gospel or to, uh, to, to witness, give witness to the gospel. And this is a key word in the gospel. So now we're told about Philip. Two people, two of the, those who were chosen in Acts 6 now are going to, are, are being highlighted. We have Stephen, first of all, and now Philip. And Philip goes to Samaria, we're told. And, uh, in Samaria, he is going to preach the, the gospel. Now here's a map showing you the territory of Samaria. Remember last time I pointed out that Galilee was in the north, Judea is in the south, and in between you have Samaria. And you'll never forget that. Bad jokes stay with you forever. And the Samaritans were looked down upon by the, by the Jews as not being pure blood because they had a mixed ethnic background. There, many of the Jews that lived in the northern kingdom had been uh, moved to other parts of the Assyrian Empire. Other ethnic groups had been moved into the area that had been the northern kingdom of Israel. And so this is a, a mixed race. But he goes to Samaria and he begins to uh, proclaim the gospel there. Let me go back to the outline. Now, what's note, what I want you to notice here, and we'll get into details on this, is the order of events that take place. As he begins to uh, proclaim the gospel, there are many that are uh, there are many that are saved. There is uh, he has various signs and wonders and miracles that are, uh, accompany his preaching to authenticate what he is saying, and we're told in verse 12, but when they believed uh, Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God. And what, as we go through this study, you ought to circle that word believed again and again and again. That is the key word for those who are saved. They're the ones who believe what has been uh, preached to them. It's not that they believed and were baptized. It's not that they believed and did good works. It is simply that they believed. So when they believed Philip, when he preached these things, uh, then both men and women were baptized. And then he, it goes on to say that it's ab- so there's the, the order of faith in Christ first, and then they are uh, baptized uh, in water. Then in verse 14, we're going to bring in the apostles. And we read, Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, a synonym for believing the gospel, they sent Peter and John to them. So Peter and John come down from Jerusalem. Always remember that, that you're up and we use up and down in terms of north and south. We go up to Dallas and down to the, to the valley. But in Israel, up and down refer to elevation. So you always went up to Jerusalem because it was higher. You would go, if you were in Jerusalem, you would go down to Samaria. You would go down to Damascus. You would go down to Tel Aviv because they're thinking in terms of elevation. So the apostles at Jerusalem come down from Jerusalem to Samaria and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. So the Samaritan believers don't automatically get the Holy Spirit at salvation. Why? Well, that's one of the things we'll spend a little more time on. It's because you have these different ethnic groups. You have Jews, you have the Samaritans, and you have the Gentiles. And if they had been saved and had a separate 
a completely autonomous uh, um, Pentecost, as it were, arrival of the Holy Spirit, it might have led to a fragmentation in the church. Well, we've got the Jewish church here in, in Judea, we've got the Samaritan group over there, and we have the, the Gentiles over there. But they don't receive the Holy Spirit except at the hands of Peter and John, which shows that they are now unified with the leadership in Jerusalem. They're not a distinct group. They are now one with the church uh, in Jerusalem. So they believe the gospel, then there's water baptism, and then there is the baptism by the Holy Spirit that comes when they, when Peter and John lay hands on them. But what doesn't happen here? What doesn't happen here is there's no speaking in languages. Now, that's, that will occur when we get into chapter 10 with Cornelius, and there wasn't a need for the evidence of speaking in languages to take place here. So we have the expansion of the gospel there, and then when that was done, they continue to take the gospel throughout the many villages of the Samaritans. But God's not through with Philip yet. In verse 26, we see the next instance. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip and said, Arise and go to the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So this is going to take place. And let me see here. I have another map that explains this, shows this a little better. And this would be here. Okay, in this map, here's Jerusalem here. And then here is Samaria up here in the area of uh, northern Samaria, just below the Galilee, which is where the uh, episode just took place. And then Philip is going to be transported miraculously by the Holy Spirit down to the southern part, down here in the Negev, down near Gaza, where he is going to meet this uh, Ethiopian who is high in the administration of the queen of Ethiopia. He is the treasurer for the Ethiopians, and he's riding along in his chariot, and the Holy Spirit tells Philip to go up to him and see what he's reading. And he is reading in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 7 and 8, and he doesn't understand what its significance is. And so Philip then explains it to him that Isaiah 53 relates to the Messiah and the death of the Messiah for sin and explains that this applies to Jesus and that Jesus is the Son of God. And then Philip says in verse 37, if you believe this, uh, and, and the, uh, do you believe this? And the uh, Ethiopian eunuch responds, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And at that point you have belief, and then he is going to be baptized uh, by uh, in water. Nothing else is... It happens in terms of uh, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And the uh, Ethiopian is just going to go on, and he's going to go back to Ethiopia, and what's he going to do? He's going to start spreading the gospel. So you have he's just one of many other people who aren't mentioned who were saved, and then they're going to go back to their hometowns and areas uh, taking the gospel with them. So then we have... Um, uh, Philip then is is caught up caught away in verse 39. And that's the same word we have for the rapture used in First Thess chapter four, by the way. And he's caught away, so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he, that is the eunuch, goes on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus and uh, passing through, and he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. So Philip 
is found down here in the lower left-hand corner at Azotus. The episode with the Philippian, uh, with the Ethiopian eunuchs down here, just off the map. Philip is found at Azotus, and then he heads back up this way, all the way up to Caesarea uh, Maritima, which is, uh, it looks like a long way on the map, but it's, what, about 35, 40 miles north of Joppa here. So that gives you a little bit of a, of a spatial, spatial reference. And he is proclaiming the gospel all along the way. Many people are saved. So all of this happens where? In Samaria and in Judea. So we're still in that second section of the book talking about how the gospel is, is expanding in, in, uh, Judea and Samaria. Chapter 9 then brings us to the Apostle Paul and the conversion of the Apostle Paul. And he has received uh, a letter of uh, authorization from the synagogues uh, and from the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem to go to Damascus and to seek out to arrest and imprison Christians in Damascus. And of course, they're not called Christians yet. That comes up a little later on. But that's what he is doing. He's seeking those, as verse 2 says, those who were uh, of the way, whether men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And so as he's headed up there with his uh, armed men, he has an armed escort that it, that's uh, going with him. He's going up with a posse, as it were. And on the way, we're told in verse 3, suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And <clears throat> those who are with him see the light, and they know, and they hear someone speak, but they can't hear the details. So this shows that it is an objective revelation. It's not something going on in Paul's head. When I was in college, I had a Western Civ professor who tried to say, see, this is just a, this is just a, a psychological event here with Paul because he is uh, so uh, intent on killing all the Christians, and he's killed so many, and he's just overwhelmed with guilt that now he has this uh, psychological guilt reaction. And that's typically how, how liberals operate, because they just don't want to believe anything that's in the text. So why do you believe that Paul was even going to Damascus uh, at all, if you're going to only believe part of what's written here? Uh, it doesn't make sense. And what the evidence shows here is that those with him were not supposed to hear what the Lord was going to say to him. But they did see something and they heard something, which tells you it's not just uh, Paul imagining something. But they weren't supposed to be uh, part of the action. So they just hear a voice, but they don't see anything. Verse uh, 7. Saul is blinded because of this. When the Lord Jesus appears to him, he says uh, to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? And then the Lord says, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goats. Now, you'll get a lot of lordship salvation. I can't resist this. A lot of lordship salvation people say, see, Saul calls him Lord right away, so he's recognizing his authority. But the word L-O-R-D is often used in Greek, kurios, as we would say sir. Uh, it's just a form of, of polite address, especially if somebody suddenly shows up in this kind of a situation with a blinding light around him. Uh, <clears throat> he's a little more polite. So Je Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. That is, you can't resist uh, the conscience constantly hearing testimony again and again and again from Christians. And so Saul is blinded because of the light, and he's told that he would get to go to 
Damascus. And there uh, he would be told what he would do. So he comes to Damascus, and while he is there, after three days, the uh, Lord appears to um, appears to Ananias and directs him to go to where Paul is located on a street called Straight and inquire for the house of one called Judas for Saul of Tarsus, and there he would heal him and restore his sight. And, and, and Ananias is saying, I mean, this is like, this is like somebody like, uh, uh, like Himmler, who was the head of the SS in, in Nazi Germany, uh, suddenly having, having a complete conversion and transformation. And now, uh, he's been persecuting you and seeking your death. And now you're going to go heal him. Uh, Ananias is just appalled at this idea that he's being asked to go heal Saul because he is the sworn enemy of all Christians. And that has a lot of implications in terms of how we ought to uh, uh, treat and love our enemies. So Ananias uh, follows orders, goes to Saul, restores his sight. And in verse 17 we read that he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, we see this phrase again and again in Acts, and I told you last time, it's not the same filling as Ephesians 5.18. It's a different word. It is pimplami, not plerao, and it uses a genitive clause, you're full of the Spirit, not filled by means of the Spirit. So this has to do with a special kind of endowment uh, that's more related to the Old Testament endowment than New Testament uh, sp- filling of the Spirit for the spiritual life. So he he, restore, he recovers his sight, and he is baptized, and then he spends almost two years in Damascus. And during that time, he uh, is uh, debating the Jews. He's It says at the end of verse 22, he's proving that Jesus is the Christ, a word there meaning he's presenting logical rational, historical arguments and evidence to show that Jesus is the Messiah. And then he uh, angers the Jews so much they start to uh, plot a way to kill him. Uh, The Christians have to hide him and secretly get him out of town, and so they lower him over the walls by a basket at night. And this all takes place between 35 and 37 uh, A.D. And so he escapes from Damascus and goes to Jerusalem, but people there are afraid of him because they just remember his reputation and they haven't uh, come to understand who he is. But Barnabas is there. Barnabas is a key player. He's one of these people who's always putting people together and resolving uh, conflicts. He's later called the son of encouragement. That was his uh, area of uh, spiritual gift. And so the apostle Paul brings, I mean Barnabas brings. Uh, Paul to the apostles and um, gives evidence that Paul has become a believer, and so then they relax and they're not as uh, as upset with him. This is Paul's first of five visits that we know of in in Acts to uh, Jerusalem, and so he's in Jerusalem. Verse twenty nine says he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists. But they attempted to kill him. So he kind of gets the pot boiling, and he's his personality that's always out there uh, preaching the gospel, arguing with the opposition. And I f- think it's very interesting that it says after he's done this in verse 29, that when the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea, which is the um, harbor on the coast, 
And they sent him back home to Tarsus. You need to calm down a little bit, Paul. Uh, you're causing too much trouble. And the next verse says, in verse 31, Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. <laughs> I bet most of you never noticed that verse before. They got Paul out of there and everything calmed down and relaxed and, and uh, uh, things began to uh, get back a little bit to, to normal. Then the emphasis shifts in verse 32 to Peter. And we're told about Peter, uh, a couple of miracles performed by, by uh, Peter where he heals the paralyzed Aeneas in verse 33. And then he restores Dorcas, who's also known as Tabitha. Uh, she dies and he uh, raises her from the dead in verses 36 down to 43. And he's in Caesarea by the sea, which is up here uh, at the top uh, left of the map. They're right on the coastline. Very beautiful uh, city. We'll see pictures of it. Uh, just uh, was a gorgeous area and was the seat of uh, Roman power. And so he's uh, he will go there. That Caesarea, excuse me. He's down in actually he's down in Joppa. He'll be going up to Caesarea when where Cornelius is. But he's down here in Joppa, which is another harbor and fishing uh, fishing town. And so he's he stays in Joppa with Simon, who's a tanner. Now, at that time, um, we're told that there is a Roman centurion uh, up here in Caesarea. Let me get over here on the map. Up here in Caesarea, and he is going to uh, send some men down here to seek out Peter. uh, Cornelius is a, a man who feared God. Now, it's interesting, the scripture doesn't identify whether he would be classified as, as an Old Testament saint at this time or what, but he has been investigating uh, Judaism. He fears God, respects God, and uh, he's continu- consistently praying to God. And <clears throat> he sees a vision. Uh, an angel appears to Cornelius and tells him to send some men down to Joppa, and they're looking for Peter and to bring Peter back to them. At the same time, uh, or the next day rather, as Peter is praying here in Joppa up on the rooftop, then uh, he receives a vision from the Lord that he is, uh, uh, which consists of this uh, huge tablecloth coming down from heaven. And it opens this, this tablecloth, a great sheet op- open, at the four corners, and he sees all the kinds of food there, four-footed animals and wild beasts and creeping things. Basically, he sees crawfish and lobsters and shrimp and pork chops and bacon and all kinds of things that he hasn't been able to eat because it's prohibited by the Mosaic law. And God tells him, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. And so that shows us once again that... uh, there's nothing wrong with killing animals for food. God authorizes it. And there's nothing wrong with eating meat. So there's not any sort of inherent value 
uh, in any of the arguments that are usually uh, set forth uh, for a strict vegetarianism, which usually has something to do with we shouldn't kill all the animals and we just shouldn't eat meat. This is all authorized by God. Now, people can be vegetarian for other reasons because of various health reasons and things like that, but in terms of the basic philosophy that's normally uh, promoted by vegetarians, which is, has to do with uh, not wanting to be cruel to animals or kill them, things of that nature, that is clearly antithetical uh, to the Scripture. And so Peter, though, based on his rigid observance of the law, says, Lord, I'm not going to eat anything uh, common or unclean. And God tells him what God has cleansed, you must not call common. At this point, this food, it's okay to eat all this food, which shows that the basic reason that God gave the dietary laws didn't have anything to do with health or because they didn't know how to cook bacon right and they would and they would get trichinosis or they or some other thing like that because they the the issue here is a dispensational shift not a suddenly discovering how how much, how they're supposed to cook meat so they don't get disease it's and all this food is now clean but what he also understands is that this means that what God has called unclean before, which is the Gentiles, are now clean. So when he is called, when these men appear who tell him that they have been sent by Cornelius, then he knows that that he is to follow them. And he follows them, goes back, meets with Cornelius, uh, witness to him, and uh, they trust in uh, Christ and believe in him. And so when we read the events of that down in verse 43, uh, we read uh, to him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sin. And while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. So he preaches the gospel. Then the Holy Spirit falls on them. And those who were of the circumcision who believed were astonished. That is already the Judaizers who are emphasizing uh, and the Jews who were circumcised were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because of the gift of the Holy Spirit has been poured out on Gentiles. And then they heard them speaking in languages, speaking in tongues. So notice the order. You have a different order than with the Samaritans. Here you're going to have speaking in tongues, which didn't happen with the Samaritans. It's a different order with Pentecost, showing that there's not a set order for these things, which is uh, in contrast to what's taught by Pentecostals. Then in chapter 11, Peter goes back to Jerusalem and has to defend defend his actions, uh, reiterates what he saw in the vision and how God was working in the situation and that God is bringing the Gentiles in as part of the church. So Peter is there at the day of Pentecost. Peter is there at the Samaritan Pentecost. And now Peter is there for the Gentile Pentecost with with, uh, Cornelius showing that all of these groups are now one in the body of Christ. Now, Peter was a dominant player in the last part of chapter 9, chapter 10, the first part of chapter 11, and now we're going to shift back to Paul starting in chapter 19, and we're talking about uh, uh, Antioch. And in Antioch, we're told that um, that as the church there in Antioch is is being established, and growing that Barnabas, who's been working with the church in Antioch, realizes that they need some uh, some help, and he thinks back to Saul, and it, now it's been about 
four, four years or so since Paul went back to Tarsus, and so he retrieves him and brings him to Antioch to help with the ministry there. And this is in the spring of 43. And then uh, and by verse 27, we shift forward a year to the spring of 44. And this is a time when there has been a, a famine in Jerusalem and economic downturn. And things are also showing some hostility and persecution. This is the same time period when uh, James, the brother of John, is going to be is uh, uh, martyred uh, by, uh, by Herod. Uh, Antipas, this is in uh, chapter 12, verse 2, and then, the, so this persecution is, is, uh, is continuing. And there's per- then we shift back to Peter, starting in 12.5. So we see sort of Paul, Peter, Paul, Peter, and then uh, we'll shift back to Paul. But this is the last we'll see. Uh, Peter here, uh, Peter is arrested, uh, put in jail, and then everybody in the church is praying for him. An angel comes and releases him. He goes to the house of uh, uh, Mary, the mother of John Mark, and knocks on the door. Rhonda comes to the door uh, to see who it is. She recognizes Peter's voice and gets so excited she doesn't let him in. She runs back and says, Peter's out there. And they said, no, you've just seen a ghost. Let's keep praying. They don't really believe God answered the prayer. And so uh, finally they let him in. And, um, and then we see the church uh, <coughs> continues to grow and be protected uh, by God, and uh, Peter goes to Caesarea and stays there, so he's sort of out of the limelight for a while. And this is about the time that Herod uh, has a uh, serious bout with some worms, and he dies in a rather interesting uh, circumstances, just as the people are crying out that he has the voice of a God uh, and not the voice of a man. And so God punishes him. There's some other interesting things going on in the background of Herod there. Apparently he had messianic aspirations, and so this is divine discipline as God takes him out so that he doesn't uh, uh, doesn't get in the way. And so we're told in verse 25 of that chapter, Paul and Barnabas returned, back to, uh, returned from Jerusalem back to Antioch, and they took John Mark with them. And now when they get back in chapter 13, they get back to Antioch, then this is uh, about 47 or so A.D., and starting in April of approximately 48, they're going to be sent out, commissioned by the church at Antioch, to go out to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And at this point, Peter, I mean, Paul is going to go on three missionary trips and a fourth journey. Okay, so you can just remember it this way. He's got three missionary trips and a fourth journey. On the, after the first missionary trip, he's going to write how many books? One book, Galatians. After the second missionary journey, he's going to write two books, First and Second Thessalonians. After the third missionary trip, he's going to write how many books? Three. See, it's really easy. God did it that way so we could remember it, the Bible for dummies. Uh, after the third missionary trip, he's going to write First and Second Corinthians and Romans. Then there's going to be the fourth trip, which isn't a missionary trip per se. It's usually not classified that way. That is when Paul is taken as a prisoner from Jerusalem back to Rome. Now, he's a prisoner in Caesarea for a couple of years before he goes to Rome. And while he's in Rome, he's under house arrest for a couple of years. And after the fourth, this fourth trip, how many books is he going to write? Four. 
He's going to write Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon and Philippians. And then he'll leave after that first imprisonment, and he's still there in his first imprisonment when the book of Acts ends. And he will leave after that first imprisonment, and he will go to uh, back to uh, Greece. He'll go back to Macedonia in the north. He goes back over to Ephesus, and then we believe he went to uh, Spain, which he had stated was in one of the epistles as his intent. We believe that he went to Spain, and possibly he went as far as as the, the British Isles, went as far as England. That's so there's some tradition to support that, but nothing in Scripture to support that. At which time he comes back to uh, comes back to Rome. Uh, he's arrested again the second time, and this ends during the time of Nero with his uh, with his execution, and he is uh, beheaded as befitting a uh, a Roman citizen as opposed to being uh, crucified. Peter is crucified, uh, and because he didn't want to be crucified. In the same way that the Lord was, they crucified Peter upside down. So the rest of Acts from chapter 13 through chapter 28 just takes us through these four journeys, one, two, and three missionary journeys in the fourth trip to Rome. So let me just put a couple of maps up here so that we can see how this works. In the first missionary journey, this is indicated by the blue arrow on this map. They're going to go from... Uh, Antioch, and they're going to set sail to the island of Cyprus, where they're going to have a positive response, but then they're going to have opposition from the Jewish community. It was always Paul's procedure to take the gospel first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And what happened in a number of places was after there was a positive response by the Gentiles, then there is a reaction of jealousy among the Jewish community that did not respond positively to uh, to Paul's message, and then they began to uh, persecute him, and they began to follow him. And so we see he's first at Cyprus, and the only, I mean, the biggest problem he's got at Cyprus is that John Mark's a little too young to uh, make it through the tough travels, and it was tough at that time, walking everywhere, basically camping out. wasn't like you got a chance to go stay at a three-star, four-star hotel. You didn't even get to stay at a one-star hotel. It was pretty rugged. So uh, John Mark isn't up to it, and so Paul, and Paul is usually treated as uh, not being quite fair-minded for this, but I don't think that's true. I think Paul, too many people give uh, uh, Paul... um, trouble over this when he sends Mark back. I think he was exactly right. He was too young. He shouldn't have come on the trip. Later on, he will he will mature some, and he will become Barnabas, his traveling companion. And towards the end, uh, he is, once again, we find at the end of Paul's life, he's associated with Paul, and uh, he is still he is helping Paul when he is a prisoner in Rome uh, during that, that during his second imprisonment. So he goes to... Uh, uh, Cyprus, which is here, and then he's going to go up here to um, up here to Persa in Pamphylia, and you also have, uh, uh, and then he goes up to Antioch in Pisidia, which is in this area right here, just at the border of southern Galatia and uh, Asia, and then then he leaves there. Under uh, persecution again from the from the Jewish community and these Judaizers, as they're called, 
follow him, uh, seeking to stir up trouble against him. And in one place, he, in Iconium, he's stoned. I believe it was at Iconium. He is stoned and left for dead. And he leaves there and goes to uh, Lystra and Derby, and then recovers covers the same ground again, goes back to Iconium and Antioch, and then back down to uh, Persa, and then they, he heads back home uh, to Antioch. So that is the first uh, first missionary journey. Then uh, he's back in Antioch for just a short time, and he uh, then leaves for the second journey. And in the second journey, this is the what color line is this? Second journey. First journey was uh, oh, red, red and blue is blue is outbound again. They shouldn't have used the same colors. He's going to head back up this way over land this time. Goes to Derby, Iconium. Antioch and heads up uh, across Asia. Now, what's interesting here is we're told that the Holy Spirit prohibits him from taking the gospel into Asia and from taking the gospel into Bithynia and Pontus. Later on, when you get to reading First Peter, Peter is writing to Jewish converts in Bithynia and Pontus. So the Holy Spirit says there's a right time and a wrong time and right people and wrong people to go to each of these areas. The apostles had their uh, areas of demarcation. Later on, at the end of this journey, or when he, in the next journey, in the third journey, at the end of this journey, he establishes a church in Ephesus. Then the third journey, he spends two years there, and he sends uh, sends missionaries out, sends preachers out all throughout Asia and has a tremendous impact, but it's not the right time yet, so the Holy Spirit uh, prevents him from having a ministry in the province of Asia, here in the western part of what is now modern Turkey. Then he's going to come across to uh, Troas here, where he has a vision of a Macedonian uh, calling him to uh, bring the gospel over to Macedonia. So they catch a boat, and they sail across here to uh, to Neapolis, and, which is the harbor here. Then they go to uh, Philippi, and then down to Thessalon- Thessalonica, and then to uh, Berea, and then they go down to uh, Athens and Corinth, and then he heads back to Ephesus, but he's just there a short time, and then he is going to head all the way back down to uh, Caesarea and Jerusalem for another visit at Jerusalem, and then back to Antioch. That is the end of his second missionary journey. Uh, third missionary journey, he is going to uh, leave, and he goes back to switch maps here to, for the third third missionary journey. He heads back across land through Tarsus, uh, goes back, revisits the churches at uh, Derby, Lystra, and Iconium, and Antioch, and then he heads right through the heart of Asia to Ephesus. And in Ephesus, he's going to establish a school for two years, uh, teaching and training men, and he's going to, going to send those men out, and they will establish churches in all the various towns. So when we read about the seven churches, uh, one of which is Ephesus, but the seven churches in uh, Revelation, you have Philadelphia and Sardis and Smyrna and uh, Thyatira, Laodicea, Colossae. All of these are founded by these men he trains while he is there in Ephesus. 
then he's going to head out again, go to Greece. He goes first to Macedonia, down into Achaia, revisiting areas he's been before, does not go back to Athens, goes to Corinth, then retraces his steps back through Berea, Thessalonica, Philippi, back to Troas, across the straits here to Troas, and then back down to Ephesus again where he visits uh, there with them for a short time, and then he's going to head back uh, to uh, Jerusalem. This is when there's various warnings that he is going to come under persecution, be arrested when he goes back to Jerusalem. There's two different views. Some people believe that he, God is warning him of what will happen, uh, but he is... Uh, totally within his rights to be headed back to Jerusalem. Others believe that he was wrong and he should have gone on to Rome. Uh, we'll look at all of those issues when we get there. He goes to Tyre and then down to Caesarea and on to Jerusalem where he takes a vow, goes to the temple, and there there's a huge riot that occurs. Uh, he's arrested and taken back to Caesarea, and he is under imprisonment for a couple of years. Finally, after the, at the trial, he appeals to, uh, he appeals to Rome because he's a Roman citizen. He says, I have a right to be heard before Caesar. And so he is put on a ship and he travels and this traces the route of the ship. It goes to Rhodes and various islands that are all marked along the way. And then when they get, uh, over here off of, uh, Malta in this area, the ship is shipwrecked. He spends some time, uh, gets washed up on the shore there at Malta, and eventually they're rescued, goes up through through uh, uh, past Sicily, and, and eventually on up to Rome, where he's under house arrest for approximately uh, two years. So when we come to the end of, of the book of Acts, we find that Paul is in house arrest in his first imprisonment in Rome, and it is the spring of 62. So it's eight years before Jerusalem will fall. And it has, by 62, it's been 30 years, 29 years since uh, the crucifixion. So it's been about th- three years, and by this time, the gospel within those 30 years has been taken uh, throughout the pretty much the known world of the Roman Empire, as we know from Acts. But what we know from tradition and from other other sources is actually the gospel went many, many other places. There, for example, Thomas went to India. Matthew and others went into North Africa where the gospel was taken across uh, the northern parts of Africa all the way over to um, areas of Carthage, which is on the the western uh, edge of North Africa, more closer to Spain. Gospel is taken into Arabia. Gospel, we know by the Ethiopian eunuch, takes it to Ethiopia. Others took the gospel into Persia, into Iran, uh, Babylon, so the gospel has spreads out over most of the known world within the first century. Many, to- many cases and many places we have no historical record, but we hear things later on. There are little hints that occur uh, later on in history that can only be explained by the fact that the gospel went that far. So that gives you an overview, the flyover for Acts. Now, next time we'll come back and we'll start looking at some of the introductory material that is in the other handout. So um, that was quick. Anybody have any questions? Cal? Wait. There is none. 
the Holy Spirit comes on them, but they don't speak in tongues. There's no need for it. We'll get into that when we get there because of the purpose of, this, of, uh, of the gift of tongues. There's not, and because the Samaritans are, are part Jewish, there's not uh, a Gentile crowd there speaking in tongues. So there's not that evidence that comes from hearing Gentiles speak in tongues, which is a sign of coming judgment to the Jews. So there's no tongues. Was, and what that shows is that tongues was there on the day of Pentecost. Tongues was there with Cornelius, but it's not with the Samaritans. So it's not a, if it had been all three places, then, um, people, then, then there would be evidence that it was the necessary sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But because it wasn't there, it's not connected necessarily to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, they 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 either heard something like they did on the day of Pentecost. They heard the sound of rushing wind, something like that. But they but there wasn't any tongue speaking associated with. Now you'll find some some Pentecostals try to argue that there was, uh, but it's not said. You can't you can't argue from silence. Cal. Paul went to the Jews first, and when the Colonel Freeman bomb was here, he said we should go to the Jews first. When he was here, he said that. Uh, you see any merit in that? No, uh, I don't think so. Be- and the reason is Jerusalem hadn't fallen yet, and I think that's still part of the transitional nature that, that we'll see in Acts. That in Acts 2 and Acts 3, Peter's still offering the kingdom. All through that initial two-year period, there is still a connection that so-and-so they were baptized and they repented because of the kingdom. There's still this, this legitimate offer of the kingdom that's going on. And I think that during that transitional period uh, between 30 and 70 when there's still a uh, the temple and there's still a, a you know outside chance that there could have been a conversion of, of the Jews then there, and an acceptance of Jesus as Messiah, then there would have been this, sh- then, then, you know, a- after the temple's destroyed, then it changes. So I don't see that as a pattern. It's never, you have to be very careful in Acts because this is recording what happened. It's not record, it's not telling us this is the way it should happen. It's descriptive. It's not prescriptive. It's telling us what happened, and it's not saying that these are to be normal patterns of, of, for the church. So I would, I, I'm real hesitant to look at something that happens in Acts and to say that that, is, that it's, uh, that's the way we should do it. Okay, any other questions? All right, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to see how the Holy Spirit worked in the early centuries to expand the church, and he is still doing that today. He is still working in and through believers in the proclamation of the gospel and bringing people to salvation on a day-to-day basis, and uh, we can be a part of that as we also follow in their footsteps as witnesses for the truth of the gospel. Pray that as we continue this study in Acts that it will challenge us with our understanding of uh, who you are and what God the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives that we may continue to grow and mature in our own spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.